This episode of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you by Lloyds Bank. With their Club Lloyds current account, you can now get 12 months of Disney Plus as your lifestyle benefit. To know me is to know that I love watching things on TV, so I am so excited to tell you about this. You might think that Disney Plus is just for Disney films. And yes, it's great for all of them. We must have watched Disney's Frozen at least 100 times by now. But it's so much more than that. With Disney Plus, there is endless entertainment with exclusive originals, brand new series, blockbuster movies. And it's just one of the great benefits that you can now get with a Club Lloyds account. I highly recommend watching The Bear if you haven't seen it yet. It's all about a talented chef who's presented with the challenge of overhauling his family sandwich shop. Season two is coming soon and I can't wait. Lloyds Bank are taking care of not only your banking needs, but entertainment too. Visit lloydsbank.com forward slash club Lloyds to find out more. £3 monthly fee is charged to maintain the club Lloyds account, but waived each month that you pay in £2,000 or more. UK residents, 18 and over, Disney Plus subscription required. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you very much to Lloyds Bank. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island Dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. The question is, what would you choose as your last meal? Hi, I hope you're all very well. We've got a lovely episode for you today with someone who you will all know very well from watching him on TV over the years. And it's so nice to meet someone in real life and have them be exactly who you thought they would be could have chatted to John for hours and we did actually have to be booted out of our room in the end. He'd also really done his research on me and the podcast, which I think tells you a lot about him. The 19th season of MasterChef has just finished, which is amazing to think that it's been in our lives for so long and it's got its 20th anniversary next year. John tells us everything from how he got the job, what his relationship with Greg is like, and his thoughts on his career as he reflects back on what has been. Anyway, that's enough waffling from me. Thank you again to our sponsors for today's episode, Lloyds Bank, for helping us to bring the podcast to you each week. I hope you're all surviving this heatwave, the one we all desperately long for and now love to complain about. Anyway, here is today's episode. My guest today is John Tarode. John is one of the food world's most recognisable faces. He grew up in Melbourne, Australia, starting his career in the world of food at the age of 16. He credits his love of food and passion for cooking to his grandmother, who raised him from the age of four. After apprenticeships at some of Melbourne's best restaurants, he moved to the UK in the 1990s, where he quickly made a name for himself. He worked his way up from sous chef at Quaglino's and he's had his own hugely successful restaurants, the likes of Smith's and the Lux. He first appeared on ITV's This Morning in 1996 and became a household name as the co-host of MasterChef in 2005, which will enter its 20th season next year. He's written numerous best-selling cookbooks and made a whole host of award-winning TV shows. He was honoured in the Queen's Birthday Honours in 2022 for outstanding services to food, 
Broadcasting and Charity. Welcome, John. I love that you've actually done your research. This is amazing. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, I love that actually you have got everything right and most people don't because what happens is people pick up things from Wikipedia and I haven't ever edited Wikipedia because I love to laugh at some of the mistakes (laughs) that people put in. I found a lovely quote by you about what cooking means to you. And you said, I've always loved cooking. It was a thing I felt very comfortable doing. You can hide away in the kitchen and it's a great place to find yourself. I wondered, what did you mean by that last bit? How has cooking helped you to find yourself? As an Aussie growing up, what you do is you're sort of almost pressured and pushed into a certain way of life. And that way of life is very much... You've got to be, you know, quite big and butch. You've got to like to go out and play rugby. Uh, you've got to like to drink beer and you've got to like Australian music. And the last three I wasn't very good at. I, I, I try and say that I'm quite butch. But um, the rest of it I just was rubbish at. I mean, I, I remember my uncle saying to me, when you play rugby, John, it's like watching a ballerina. You try and dodge the ball as much as possible and the people around. Why very sensible, I? yeah. <laughs> I was five. Full contact, rugby league, really five years old. I mean, you know, aggressive kids just going for you. Parents going, get him, get him, you know. Uh, I don't drink (laughs) beer because I do drink beer occasionally, but it's going to be very, very cold. I don't like McCaptain, which is, and I've only found this out in the last decade, McCaptain is the smell that comes off beer and it's got to do with almost like a rotten egg smell. Some people pick it up, some people don't. So non-alcoholic beer, things such as Lucky Saint and Heaps Normal and various things like that which have just come on the market, they don't have a captain. So I can actually, I quite enjoy that. Um, and Australian music, uh, no, I'm really sorry. Okay. Growing up as a kid, I liked New Romantics and, you know, I was into, you know, spiky hair and wearing eyeliner and pointy shoes and all that sort of stuff. And I, I loved it. So I was a rubbish Australian. So I could go to the kitchen I could go and work a night shift. I'd start work at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, I'd catch the last train home about 12.40. I'd get home. My brothers would go to work really early in the morning. I'd have the house to myself. I'd duck off to work and my life became a new life completely. I sort of metamorphosized at the age of 16 and changed what I was and became what I became. Isn't that amazing? Which I love that I can actually do that. Mm. And I think anybody can do that. And then, of course, I I made the, the really big move and got the bloody hell out of there. I love it. Don't get me wrong. I love Australia, but I got the bloody hell out of there. (laughs) When asked how you would most like to be remembered, you said for your sausage rolls, which would make quite an epitaph, I think. What is it about your sausage rolls that make them so special? Uh, I don't know. Um, It's funny. My son, Casper, came round for lunch on Sunday, and he messaged me because we were supposed to meet in Highgate Wood, and he messaged me saying, sorry, I'm running late. I haven't got the sausage rolls out of the oven yet. And he decided he was going to make sausage rolls. There's just something really nice about them as a gift. They're sort of, they're really egalitarian, mm. crispy on the outside, soft on the inside, rubbish you're a vegetarian. Um, but I don't know, there's something about a sausage roll as a thing that encompasses the joys of life. You know, it's got everything it needs. Yeah. You can have it with mustard, you can have it with tomato ketchup, you can have it with horseradish, you can posh it up if you want to. But you know what, I think a sausage roll in any guise, whether it be sort of small and dumpy and artisan or whether it be sort of long and manufactured in a huge factory somewhere I don't know where and almost done in a microwave and slightly squeaky, Mm. they're all good. You're not wrong, John. So Something about a sausage, you know. (laughs) Sausages are good. You've said you had a fantastic childhood, growing up with a garden that backed onto the beach and a grandmother who loved to cook. So let's talk about the first desert island dish, and that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. My nana 
lived in rural New South Wales and Maitland where my mother lived. And then my dad, we moved into Melbourne. So with my nana, I was sort of four and a half when I moved there. Uh, She had a combustion stove, which meant basically you had to light the oven, the stove and the wood to actually heat the stove up. Um, And it sounds really weird. This is 1970s. Um, You know, the veg truck came into the driveway uh, on a twice a week. We, We had a very, very simple life, I think. And so the first thing I really learned to cook, and people sort of think, you know, it's chicken, I actually made the gravy. Ooh. I was allowed to make the gravy on a, on, a, on a sort of Sunday lunch just before Christmas. And I was allowed to stand on a stool and make gravy with my nana. And making gravy was a big thing because we didn't have a lot of money and meat went a long way. So a chicken would go between five or six people. And so you would end up with this feast and gravy was a big part of it. And the baking tray my Auntie Mary still has, and I saw mm. her only a couple of weeks ago, and she said to me, don't worry, I've got the baking tray for you. I know it's yours. Don't worry about it. But she has a baking tray, which was white enamel. That's what Nana cooked the chicken in with some vegetables around the outside of it. All that came out, sat on the side, rested. We didn't even know what that meant in the 1970s. Uh, and then all the juice was used to make the gravy, sprinkle flour into the tray, salt and pepper, stir it till it went toasty and brown, make sure it doesn't burn, John, and then add to it. <laughs> good old-fashioned council stock, just water, nothing else, and then stir and stir and let it bubble away. And she was really finickety about the fact of how long it had to boil for. And now as a cook and understanding the science of it, it was to cook the flour out. It was plain flour. Mm. So it had to work. And it was it's and it went browner as it started to reduce because of Maillard reaction and all these things I sort of realised, but she just did it instinctively. So there was gravy. That was the, the first thing. How and old do you think you were when you were in charge of the gravy? Five. Wow. And I've made it the same way ever since. Wow. I love it. Well, actually, since I met Lisa, I do every so often cheat with a few gravy granules. Oh. <laughs> She's tra- taught me I'm allowed to cheat. That's definitely allowed. Your nana sounds like an extraordinary lady and what you describe as a good old-fashioned cook. Mm. You say there were always meringues in the oven, breadcrumbs drying on the stove and a tub of lard underneath the sink. Mm. And that is the kind of woman I aspire to be. Is that something that you think about now with your own children? Are you conscious of the role that food plays in their childhood? I think that food is important to all of us. I think it's a communication. I think food really actually is is a punctuation point in your life. And if you can find a way of continuing to be generous, our children pick that up, I feel. Mm. And I think food is a generous thing. It's a gift. It's something we do because we love people. Um, and I, and I think that that matriarchal way of doing things is very different from the paternal way of doing things. And I've tried to become more of that sort of matriarchal rather than being just, you know, a father. Because I think there's something really in it. Um, all my children love food. Uh, all my children can cook and they want to cook. Um, and even with Lisa's, you know, Billy last night, she had some friends over, made her own garlic tomato pasta sauce, which she, she wanted to make her own stuff. And I love that there's this ownership over it. And I will find my son now, you know, making pancakes first thing in the morning and do it doing it easily. Or I get messages from my children saying, how's this, how do you make this or what's that going on? And I, I love that. My dad always said to me when I was a kid growing up, there's a couple of things I'd like you to do. Uh, I'd like you to be able to cook yourself some food. I'd like you to be able to pay, you know, sort out your own bank account and I'd like you to be able to iron a shirt. And I thought yeah. that was pretty good. Yeah. And I think those sort of basic principles of life, if they can do that, I, you know, I'd like my kids to walk away and think food's a good thing. I think there's a lot of people really scared of it and I think that's a manufacturer's thing going on. <laughs> but I think we are being pushed to a place where, where cooking is going to become abnormal. 
and I don't want that to happen. I want people to be able to just cook and be, feel free about it and feel generous and feel confident about it. Mm. And I want my kids to be confident about it. Definitely. You've been quoted as saying that women make better cooks than men as their food tastes more maternal. And I love that you said that. That sort of ties into what you were just saying. But do you stand by that? Oh, yeah, yeah, 100%. I, you know, I, some of the best food I've ever eaten in the world has been cooked by women. If you consider it, where do those people, if you ask them in a survey... Where do they feel most comfortable? Where's the food they go to? They'll go home or they'll go to their grandparents' house. And the thing is that what happens is it's not showing off. And blokes love to show off. We're like peacocks, let's be fair. It is about showing off. It's about attracting something and that attention. And, and I know there's a lot of people out there who get upset with me about saying this, but there's such a massive difference. And my greatest, two of my greatest heroes, Rose Gray and Ruth Rogers. Rose Gray was a great, great friend of mine, amazing person. And I just, she just, the way her food tasted and felt, it was complicated but not fancy. Yeah, and wasn't I love showing that. off. Not showing off in any way, mm. just food. And I love, you know, you go to a sort of, you know, an Italian family's house or a Greek's house, and that was the mother's, it doesn't matter what time of day it is, it's like apron on, right, come on, I've got to feed you, or you need to eat, eat some food now. Yeah. And actually my, my oldest said to me, he said, like, coming to you now, he said, it's like going to grandma's. <laughs> we always get sent away with stuff. Oh, with heaven, food. John. Yeah, brilliant. Obviously the River Cafe is this you know, incredible institution. Do you mm -hmm. think that would never have been set up by men because they would never have created... The, because I guess the beauty of the River Cafe is how simple it is and it's the focus on quality ingredients. Do you think that has a large thing to do with the fact that it was two women? Well, I think so. I think the other thing is to remember that with the River Cafe is that I've been going there for a long, long time and we're sitting in a room which is probably three and a half metres by three metres and the River Cafe's kitchen originally was only this big. Mm. And next to it, there was only 20 chairs. And it slowly got bigger and bigger and bigger. Then there was a fire and all sorts of things happened. But the River Cafe, I've had some most incredible food from a piece of sea bass soaked in olive oil through to a holdover sole roasted on rosemary to, you know, really good mozzarella to the first time I ever really ate proper cavallonero to ribolita, which has been cooked down for hours and hours and hours. It, it, it just had this sort of magic. But who else would dare to serve a bowl of bean soup? Mm. Ribolita with fresh olive oil across the top because they'd been across to Italy and tasted this amazing olive oil. So, well, what do we what do we put this on? You know, and a piece of sea bass, which is so beautiful, and be game enough to go. Here's a lemon. Here's some olive oil. Just eat that, guys. We've cooked it so well. And there's something about that that I just I adore, and I think that simplicity, not showing off, and also not trying to have to achieve an accolade. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. You know, there's this thing about, well, I've got my personal best, you know. And yes, some people like stars. I want to be able to go to a place and eat really nice food, whether I've got a pair of thongs on. Now, that's the, not the pants, guys, that's the shoes. <laughs> All right, John. <laughs> uh, or and a pair of shorts or whether I've got a tuxedo on. I want to be able to go into a place and eat the same sort of food. I don't care. Mm. And it, it doesn't have to be snobby. It needs to be egalitarian. And that's why the sausage roll, I think, bridges all gaps. That actually reminds me of this quote that I heard the other day. You have to love either what you're going to eat or the person that you're cooking for. And then you have to give yourself up to cooking because cuisine is an act of love. What do you think that says about people that go into cooking as a profession? I think that maybe, like me, a lot of people haven't quite found their own way just yet and they're finding their own way. And when they do find the way and when the penny finally drops and the epiphany finally happens, they go, I get it. 
when I was a kid growing up, we didn't do things like trauma therapy and all those sort of stuff. My mother died when I was four. Mm. I, I must have been slightly messed up. I mean, let's be fair about it. And, you know, I had a conversation with my brothers this week as well about it. But so trying to find yourself in that world and find those things. And I think once you, as you say, once you give up to it, and if anybody's ever run a marathon, you train for it. And the day that you actually give up to the whole thing and go, right, you know what? I can relax into this and I can actually run and I can do this is the day that becomes freedom. It's just really lovely. And I never understood that freedom of running until such time as I did that or cycling a bike. The day you give up to it and stop being stressed about it, it becomes something really, really lovely. Stop thinking about what everybody else thinks about you and just do your own thing. Hmm. I don't know if I could ever feel like that about running the marathon, John. Well, I won't do one again. It hurt my knee too much. It cost me more on surgery than I raised for charity. Let's pause there and talk about the second desert island dish. And that's the first dish you learned to cook. Well, the first dish I really, truly learned to cook was a roast chicken. Mm-hmm. You know, Nana went, okay, fine, you've done the gravy and do roast chicken. But it was roast chicken, roast pork and a roast lamb all in the same day. It was Christmas Day. Ooh, yeah. uh, the, all the family were coming. The side area was all set up with lots of plates for the adults. All the kids were relegated out to the balcony. Um, and, yeah, there was three types of meat. Roast potatoes are plenty. Um, lots and lots of green veg. Uh, so, you know, cabbage maybe or, you know, things like Not Brussels sprouts, peas, fresh peas being potted. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, no, roast chicken cooked properly, uh, seasoned on the inside, uh, stuffing cooked separately, all those things, how to make sure it tasted really good. And um, a roast chicken is still... A great thing. So were you in charge of all elements or you, the chicken was your domain? The chicken was my domain, okay. but I was allowed to watch everything else be cooked. Yeah. I think the um, putting together a roasted lunch is actually a really good lesson in, in cooking because it's so many different timing elements and so many different things you've got to think about. If you can master a really good roast, I think that's a good beginning. I look, go to I hear people in pubs and they go, they say about something about, oh, this roast is not very good. I think... Cooking at home is one thing because mm. all your timings, you know that everybody's eating at 2.30. Yeah. Imagine you're in a pub and those roast potatoes have to be perfect at 1 o'clock, 1.15, 1.20, 1.25, 1 And the Yorkshire puddings have to be perfect and the beef's got to be perfect and the pork's got to be perfect. It's really hard. Really hard. I, breakfast is difficult because you've got a bacon, sausage, eggs, all that sort of stuff. But roast potatoes, Yorkies, cauliflower cheese, you know, now everybody wants sort of a medley of vegetables. But I... I think you're right. I think, you know, little skills for me, I think there's a couple of... If you can learn a couple of basics in food, you go a long way. And Mm. and, and I think a roast is one, but start with a piece of roast meat and potatoes and then move up and then gradually add your bits to it. And just do it over and over and over again. And this is about giving into it. Don't think you've got to do everything at once. You can't run a marathon if you haven't done any training. You know, and you've probably heard me say this whole thing about a, a piano player. And I won't say what they're called professionally because everybody says to me I say it wrong. And if I say it wrong, then everybody thinks I'm saying something completely different. <laughs> well, how do you say it? <laughs> a pianist. And people think that I say something completely different because <laughs> I'm Australian. But uh, they would never go to a concert hall without first rehearsing a piece of music. They would never go and walk in front of somebody and pick up a piece of music from absolutely nowhere, never played it before, put it on their piano and play it in front of an audience. Why do we think we can pick up a cookbook mm. with food we don't know about and actually think we can actually make the whole thing there and then in front of everybody else? Give it a go first. Make it your own. Do yeah. your own thing. Yeah. You and know? be afraid to make mistakes. Like cooking is 90% confidence. And what's the worst that could happen? 
Well, you've got to make mistakes to get better yeah. at everything. That's life. That's where we get confidence from. Yeah. Bounce back up again. On first moving to London in 1991, you said that London was a food desert. There was only Quaglino's where you worked, the Criterion and Langan's Brasserie. It must have been really exciting to see how much things changed and for you to have been right at the centre of it. Well, I think when I say it was a food desert, what happened was I left Sydney and I was eating, eating in restaurants four days a week. It was great food, it was modern, it was happening, it was egalitarian, it was going somewhere. I came over here and literally found this place to go to. I was told it was the best Italian in Notting Hill. It was dreadful, oh, absolutely no. shocking. It was shocking, really, really bad. And then I was told to go to a hotel for some lunch because that's where food would be really good. And some man who was, you know, stood there and looked at me as if I'd ordered something really weird. That's what I meant, really, about food desert. Mm. It didn't have that anybody could go anywhere feeling and everybody was judged upon everything and it's changed. Quaglino suddenly opened up with, with Terence 1992. Uh, we had 350 seats. Nobody knew what was going to happen. We were full from day one. We did Sunday dinner. We did Sunday lunch, which was busy. Sunday dinner, we thought nobody will come. We were literally running around to restaurants around the area taking whatever we could, boxes of spinach, bags of potatoes, anything we possibly could because we had no food left. Really? Absolutely extraordinary. Oh I've never goodness. seen anything like it. But he suddenly opened up this world that everybody just thought, amazing, amazing. I can have a steak, I can have a rocket salad, I can have uh, a piece of barbecued lamb soaked in yogurt, I can have a piece of cod on Jerusalem artichoke puree. I mean, I almost remember the whole menu, really. Um, <laughs> but it was just the most fantastic, incredible experience. And suddenly the world started to open up and it was just a, a brilliant time. And Terence has got, you know, God rest his soul. I mean, he's got a lot to, to be thankful for because he really changed the face of what food's all about. Mm. Deciding that you wanted to pursue a career in food, I know you were cooking from the age of 16 in Australia, going to catering college and working in various restaurants, but what was it that drew you to London when things were not that exciting here? Well, uh, okay. Well, actually, the reason I came to London was that my my girlfriend then, at the time I'd met her and I was working as barman when we first met um, in Queensland in, in Surface Paradise. Um, and I was a barman at Grumpy's Wharf, uh, which was great. And then uh, we then went down to Melbourne. I worked in Melbourne, then back up into Sydney. So she was um, English. So we came across. I'd learned Italian at school. I'd worked in Italian kitchens. And I really wanted to go and live in Italy. Mm. So arrived, I had I was given a bonus when I left Australia of eight thousand dollars, which was quite a lot of money. But it was three to one at that stage, the exchange rate. So we ended up with about two and a half, two thousand seven hundred pounds or something. Mm. We then decided to go to Paris for the weekend, and I think we spent about two thousand pounds of that two thousand seven hundred. So we came back and realised we had no money because I didn't understand the exchange rate. So I started work, then I started procreating. And then I started divorcing and then uh, I started doing silly things and then I procreated again and then I divorced again and I'm still here. I don't, well, so not... you accidentally settled in London? I did, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so we have stayed. the exchange rate to thank for that. Well, yes and no, I suppose there was work. But was really what was really cool is that I got married again a few years ago. I've always had what's called a, a patriality right to stay in the UK. Mm. And I've always kept my Australian passport. So I said to the guys, okay, well, I'm going to get a, a, a British passport wrote to the Home Office and I got this letter back saying, thank you very much, Mr. Turow. We have no record of a Mr. John Turow in the UK oh in any shape nor form. <laughs> Anything you'd like to be able to do, please go to the Windrush helpline. What? They had no record of me whatsoever. So I'd been paying my taxes. <laughs> I'd been company directors. 
I'd been doing television. What? I'd been to the palace and met the Queen once with a small audience, also then actually in a large audience. Uh, I've fed quite a lot of royalty. I'd done um, dinner at number 10 twice, right? So I've obviously been passed by security. Yeah. No record of me whatsoever. Didn't exist. But that's so beyond then, bizarre. Then I had to prove myself that I used to stand up with 35 pages of stuff, went to the home office, and the guy who interviewed me said to me, you are, sir, the first person who ever's come here with your Wikipedia page. <laughs> I said, well, don't believe everything in it, but there you go, there it is. But I have been working here for quite a long time and I have been paying my taxes. That does not fill me with very much confidence. That's Four children crazy. born in the country, all sorts of stuff, christened. You know, marriages, divorces. I mean, extraordinary. You've been flying under the radar. That's right. But on top of the radar at the same time. Yeah, my account said you should try and claim your tax back. Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I know that you're slightly um, talking in jest when you talk about not being a good Australian. But when you talk about your teenage years and how you enjoyed a glass of wine and the new romantics and not being good at rugby, did you enjoy being a teenager? I grew up in a house where I walked out the back gate and I was on sand. I lived with no shoes, I had a pair of shorts. Uh, Yeah, I probably had one jumper, I think, and that's about it. And uh, yeah, I loved it, I absolutely loved it. I mean, I had so few clothes that one day I was wearing a polo neck shirt at um, at dinner and my father said to me, show me your neck. I went, what? He went, I've never seen that joke before in my life, show me your neck. He realised I had hickey, Um, (laughs) which I got grounded for two weeks for. It was such a joyous time. Edith Vale Beach was long. It was white sands. We had a boat ship. We had a catamaran. I swam. I dived. I loved the sea. Whenever I go home to Australia, the first thing I do is I get off a plane. I go and check in where I am. I drop my suitcase. I put on a pair of shorts and I go for a swim. I just just love the sea and because of that growing up. Mm. And so, no, I had a fantastic childhood. Um, Loved dearly by my father, great brothers. Some of them a bit of a pain in the bum sometimes. But you know what? That's part of the the trophy of being a brother. Yeah. Let's pause there and talk about the third desert island dish, and that's the best dish you've ever eaten. Right. Okay. Portugal, I would say 1997, a little beach place which isn't there anymore. Well, it has been. It's been redone, but it's now something else, completely different, and it's not as good as it was. Sat down with my first wife, two children, and we sat on this sort of decked area. Um, didn't really know much about this place, been told it was going to be quite good. Turned up, this man walks over with a bucket of fish, says, which one do you want? Uh, we ordered a piece of bream and a piece of squid. It went back, a lady standing over a 44-gallon drum cut in half with coals, cooked us this amazing piece of fish. We had a, a rice dish with it. We had some um, tomato salad with onions and vinegar on it and uh, we drank rosé and we drank two bottles and we got absolutely smashed. (laughs) But for the first time, I think, in my life, I sat down and ate food and thought, this is what food's really all about. This is amazing. These fish have just been caught. There's somebody who really cares about it. But the taste of this piece of fish with this tomato salad doused in vinegar only with onions across the top of it because... You never put oil on a tomato salad. It kills it. Just vinegar and salt. And the world came alive. And there was the sea and there was a bit of breeze and the rosé was cold. And I think the whole meal cost us, cost us the equivalent of about five quid. <gasps> we had no money. Oh my God. 
and we used to go down the market and buy stuff, but it was just, and this piece of squid, I remember it coming out with its tentacles put back inside it, and it was all charred and slightly rubbery and lemon and olive oil, and it was just the most delicious thing I've ever, ever eaten in my life. I've never eaten anything like it again. And I've had little bits, but I suppose the romance of the, of the environment, two very, very young children, all that sort of stuff that went with it. It was one of those sort of great, great moments. That sounds like heaven. So you've never been back to that place? I went back, yeah, yeah. and I went back and it was, wasn't as good. No. I went back again a number of years later. It was disappointing. However, if everybody does go to uh, Lago, Gigi's, which is on the yeah. beach, big orange parasols out the front, that's the same, but what you've got to do, guys, instead of being five quid, take 500 with you oh. <laughs> and then you might be all right. <laughs> it's a ridiculous amount of money, but it's really good fresh fish and delicious. <laughs> a top tip from John Tarode. So while working at Quaglino's, that's where you first met Greg Wallace when he was supplying the fruit and vegetables for the restaurant. Ah, not quite. Oh, uh, what? Before Quags, I worked at a place called Sydney Street, Australian restaurant ah. in Sydney Street in Chelsea. Greg Wallace turned up. And he uh, wanted to sell me fruit and veg. I was doing Thai curries where you needed coriander root. I said to this guy who turned up in his little white escort van, if you can get me coriander root, mate, you can have the veg order. He turned up a week later with coriander with the root on, and there you go, you did a deal, and that's it. He's been my fruit and veg man ever since. Did you imagine then that you would go on to work together in the way that you have? Like, did you get no. on immediately? We got on, but we were work colleagues. And yeah. we've always stayed work colleagues. <laughs> so categorically not your friend. I <laughs> know, uh, friend. But, but how do you find a friend? I think you define a friend of somebody, if you're in a ditch one day and you're really in, you know, the caca, you ring up and go, I need help. That's a friend. Yeah. Greg would do that. Okay. So he's a friend. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But I don't go to the pub with him. I don't, I, we've both not been to each other's houses. We just, that is, that's, we just don't do it. You've never been to Greg's house? No, 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 you wouldn't know where to put me. What? What well, do you mean? He's so AD. Well, what's um, it called? Um, is he OCD? Well, he, he says he's, he's CDO because he wants it in the right order. That's one of his oh, favourite jokes. Oh, that one of Greg's? favourite jokes. <laughs> um, but he, yeah, he wouldn't know where to put me. If he came to my house, he wouldn't know what to do. You know, he's he's got these behavioural things that he does and he knows what to do. So okay. you just let that go. Yeah. It's like the relaxing into it thing. Just, you know what, I'm not yeah. worried about it. I'll let it go. It's fine. It's all right. There are different ways to be friends with different people. Yeah. We have great respect for each other. You know, to get to 20 years as a partnership, I mean, he's done better than both my marriages. Um, <laughs> and I've done better than his others as well. So that's all right. So yeah, we've got obviously got a secret somewhere. You've worked in restaurants and you've also run restaurants. Which do you prefer? Uh, I think it depends upon the time. I, I loved running a restaurant. I really did. I think that the one thing, I love customers. I love the people who work in a restaurant. I love the environment. I love the noise. Uh, I, I get frustrated by it because I'm sort of quite particular about it. Maybe I'll do it again. I'm not quite sure. Uh, but the idea of having sweat dripping down my back into my bum crack uh, every day at service time doesn't fill me with joy anymore. I loved it when I was young, but not now. I think whenever it's the heat wave in the summer, you're always a little bit grateful you're not in a professional well, kitchen. Well, you imagine, you know, being in Australia and what it was like. Ooh, you know, ooh, yeah. It was hot a lot of the time. And actually, whilst I was away this time, I was thinking, you know, even in sort of some of the, the places I was going to, and it wasn't that hot, I think, wow, you know, ooh. Yeah, very sweaty. Sweaty. We're on to the fourth desert island dish. John, what is your favourite sandwich? So it's either got to be a salad sandwich 
you don't even know what a salad sandwich is, do you guys? So a salad sandwich is a very, very big Australian iconic thing. Oh, right, okay. So a salad sandwich is something we grew up with. And a salad sandwich is simply two bits of bread, white bread, got to be quite thick, butter on them, grated carrot, beetroot, lettuce, tomatoes, cucumber, all stacked together and it's really thick. So there's lots of lettuce, lots of grated carrot, lots of tomato, lots of cucumber, all together, raw onion in there as well, salt and pepper, and it's put together but it's quite high. And when you eat it, and you have ham and salad, you can have ham, cheese and salad, or you can have cheese and salad, but then it's a salad sandwich and it's just salad in a sandwich. Do you have salad cream or mayonnaise or it's just... That'd be ridiculous. No. It's a salad okay. sandwich. It would make, make the bread go soggy. Yeah. Don't be Silly like that. suggestion. The butter, of course, is fat. It Obviously. will protect the bread. There's something about, and I had one while I was over there last three weeks ago, and it still tastes lovely and fresh. It doesn't have that smell which I associate with sandwich bars in the UK. There's a smell of sandwich bars in the UK. You open up a sandwich and it smells weird, odd, manufactured. A salad sandwich smells like fresh carrot, raw onion, beetroot. And, of course, they can't keep them for very long. But they're in every bakery, they're in lots of milk bars, they're all over the place, and they're freshly made, delicious. Wow. Have you found a good one in London? No. No. One day I'll make one here. Yes. I'll do a proper salad sandwich. That yeah. should be your next restaurant venture, Called a salad sa- sandwich. I oh. might do one, a salad sandwich. Yes. Okay. I'm okay. going to try it. And any Australian out there will be going, oh, yeah. But I always find those kind of things so strange. If that's a national phenomenon and everyone loves it, why has that not travelled across the world? Why are we not all eating salad sandwiches? I don't know. Why does the lamington not really exist here? I don't know. You know lamington's a fine thing. Sponge mm. coated in coconut and chocolate. Raspberry jam through the centre. It's well, yeah, a delicious it's thing. Jo- I feel it's like a morsel you of joy. are the Australian ambassador and you need to bring these things to us. Well, when I first did I did a fish finger sandwich in 2000 at Smith's and I think I was probably one of the first people to do it actually in a restaurant and I got really good quality fish fingers, thick white bread, uh, butter, mayonnaise, fish fingers, nothing else. And then people started doing their fish finger BLTs and all sorts of stuff that went with it. But there's something about a fish finger sandwich but it's it's about proportion. Bread to fish to crispy to soggy to all those things, that the proportion in a sandwich is really important. So a salad sandwich has the, the soggy on the outside, the crispy carrot, the crispy, the crunch, the, and it makes a proper noise when you eat it. Mm. You know, good food's got to make a noise. What's your favourite sandwich? I feel like the BLT is a very important sandwich to right. me because I, I had it when I was very young and it kind of opened up a whole world of delicious sandwiches. I feel like that was my first sandwich that I fell in love with and it can't be beaten, I don't think. My father's favourite sandwich is peanut butter and beetroot. So sliced beetroot over tin. Yeah. Peanut butter, crunchy peanut butter and beetroot together. Now, it might sound a bit odd, right, but think about peanuts and peanut butter and sardé sauce and chicken. Mm. Okay? Mm. So try a bit of peanut butter and a bit of beetroot next time you have it and see what you think. Is it really good? Yeah. You know those little chilli beetroots you get now in the supermarkets? Yeah. Those, chilli, spicy, with peanut butter across the top of them. Honestly, canapé of 2004. <laughs> 24. <laughs> you heard it if, here if, first. You're every, putting your marker in the ground. If I start seeing beetroot <laughs> peanut butter canapés around the place, I know where it came from. When you had the fish finger sandwich on the menu, was it really popular? Enormous. Was it? Enormous. I mean, honestly, the amount of... And it was funny, really, really funny, that when I was in Australia, I pitched up this, met this person 
ironically from somebody I knew in Western Australia, they knew in Western Australia, they are now the, the culinary director of Crown Hotel in Sydney. They've got a brigade of 320. Her name's Sarah. Amazing accomplishment to, to be able to do what she's doing. And she said to me, she said, still, I remember having a hangover and going to Smith's and just having a fish finger sandwich. It fixed every trouble in the world. Yeah, she's not wrong. So the story goes that a TV crew came to the restaurant, Matzo, to film. And you went up to the producer and you told him that you wished to work in TV. And it was this meeting that led to your debut on This Morning. Is that really how it went? It's exactly it. Okay. And his name was Helen Williams. Helen Williams, I don't know where she is. She was a producer, features producer on This Morning, and we did something called World on a, World on a Plate. I dare say the tape has disappeared because in those days the tapes were then run over. Um, and then I started doing This Morning. That's absolutely it. So you just, start... you just went up to her and you said... We did this whole film and I said at the end of it, I said, oh, if you want anybody else, you want more, somebody to do more telly, hey, you know what, I'm your guy. I'm, you know, brash Australian, got a bit of bravado. And she gifted me with the job. And had that been something that you'd always thought you might like to do? No, I just no. did it on a whim. <laughs> I, I think one of the things in life is that I think, you know, sometimes when you're faced with a road, you know, that choice, I don't know, I, I, an opportunity, and maybe you don't even know the opportunity's there, but sometimes you've got to go for it. Maybe embarrass myself at times, but... Imagine if you hadn't have done that. You do absolutely have to take opportunities as and when they come, even if it's not something that you're thinking about. But yeah. it's crazy what that's then led to. Well, when we first... My agent came to me and talked to me about this job that was going to happen and apparently it was going to be a cookery competition in shopping centres around the country. Oh. And would you like to do it? And I said, well, I'll, yeah. So we go for, you know, go for the screen test. Well, that screen test was MasterChef. <gasps> They, no didn't, they didn't want to use the word MasterChef. They didn't want to tell anybody what it was. So I went for this screen test and I, I walked in and the, the person who was doing it, Karen Ross, just went, yeah, you're it, done, thanks very much. Fantastic, right, you're employed, thank you. And then we tried to find me a partner and eventually we found Greg. Did you recommend Greg? No. So that found, was just totally random? Yeah, so no, yeah, I got this message saying, okay, we're doing some more screen tests today. You've got uh, A.A. Gill uh, and Greg Wallace. Wallace, what really? Are you sure? There we are, done. It's history. Oh my goodness, I had no idea. Yeah. I thought because you guys had already known each other, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah, just the world. And did it start in shopping centers like you just no. said? No, no, but it started on a... started in uh, in a studio in Basswick Street in um, East London. Uh, we started off with 110 contestants. First round was nine contestants. The first nine never saw the TV screens. It went down to six. So three people never saw that who came on, never saw the telly. Um, if I told you what I got paid each day to actually do the television program, you'd look at me and go, really, you did that? And I just thought, well, might as well do it. Um, and it was just amazing. And that was the start. Started on BBC Two at four o'clock. And now 20 years later, we're on BBC One and we're prime time. And we get 65 million hits on the iPlayer. It's not bad. Oh, my goodness. And did you have any notion when you started that that's what it was going to become? No, I don't. And I, I suppose because I never really had any expectation about most stuff. I mean, I, I dream, I plan, but I hope I leave enough place for things to happen. Mm. You know, let stuff go. And and it just it just happens. There were times in my life when I was just thinking, please don't stop now, please don't stop now. And the school fees are too big. Um, but, you know, otherwise, yeah, just, I, I was fine. It's good. <laughs> Um, let's pause there and talk about the fifth desert island dish, and that's the dish you eat the most often. You mean the dish I eat the most often at home, I suppose, and cook at home? I would dare say that realistically it's either 
a curry of some type, but a Thai curry, or it's a bowl of pasta. And pink spaghetti seems to be the thing that keeps everybody really happy. Mm. Now, pink spaghetti is basically fresh tomatoes, olive oil, maybe a shallot, cooked down for a really long time, a little bit of water, and just spaghetti and then grated cheese across the top. Serve with a bit of salad, maybe a, an iceberg lettuce and a big hunk of gorgonzola. But that seems to be the, the go-to. Oh, oh, we've been really busy. What are we going to do for dinner? I like calling it pink spaghetti. It's my name. Yeah. Oh, right. Sorry. That's, that's my thing. <laughs> okay. It's my invention. I won't start doing that no, then. You can call it pink spaghetti if you want <laughs> okay, to. That's fine. I'll credit you. But pink spaghetti actually now has other guises and sometimes there's a bit of chorizo added to it. There might be a bit of bacon, sometimes some chilli flakes, sometimes some olives. Uh, but it's sort of evolved the pink spaghetti. And it, the other day we had it with artichokes actually, I had a jar of artichokes mm-hmm. in the cupboard yeah. and some olives. Um, but it's sort of one of those things that it's a basic tomato sauce, bowl of pasta, and some cheese. It's easy, it's quick, it just works for everybody and the kids like it and it's vegetarian for when they decide that Thursday they're going to be vegetarian <laughs> and on the Saturday they're going to bring steak home. Um, you know, that sort of thing that goes on. Uh, we have now adopted you as a national treasure despite your earlier story about us not really knowing that you were in the country. Yeah. But you were awarded an MBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours. What was that like? Well, I, I, amazing honour. I got a phone call from Greg saying... We're MBEs. I went, don't be ridiculous. Um, and then I rang somebody and they said, yes, you are. You've been asked, you, you've been you've been invited to be one. Uh, do you want to accept it? But I think me, for more than anything else, it was the last of the Queen's lists. Mm, so it was special. her Jubilee list. That so was the last list she ever did. Uh, the certificate arrived in a tube which has got the King's postmark on it, but her mm. signature on it. So she'd signed certificates before she passed away. So she must have signed them when she actually gave out the things. Um, And then I got a really amazing personal letter from the Now Queen concert uh, because I know her son fairly well from the the food industry and stuff. And so Queen Camilla, which was a really lovely thing to get. It was just a really big thing. And I didn't realise how big it was until Lisa went, what? (laughs) (laughs) It's huge. Massive. I I I had no real idea. My father is chuffed. I took my medal across to Australia and showed everybody. Um, they're all sort of very, very excited about it. On the actual day itself, did you go for a big celebration lunch afterwards? Uh, well, I, I took my daughter with me. Mm. I took my daughter, and I think this is why I think one of the reasons I love Lisa so much. She said to me, listen, if that was my father, I would want to go with my father to the palace. So I'm going to let you and your daughter go together. So Lulu came, got all dressed up, and I think she sort of started the whole journey thinking, oh, this will be interesting. I suppose we drove through the gates because I drove my car because I wanted to drive through with her because I'd been through the gates before. But you drive through the front gates of Buckingham Palace and as you drive through, you drive underneath the balcony and you go into the car park and all this sort of stuff. And suddenly she walked, there's this courtyard and there's all these guards, some in, you know, uh, full um, armour, some in uniform, all the pages are there. Hello, Mr. Tarot. Hello, Miss Lulu Tarot. I mean, she was greeted by her name and all this sort of stuff. And she was like, wow. And then, of course, she had to go and do a pee in the toilet in Buckingham Palace because oh. that was one of the things you've got to do. Yeah. You have to. You have to. There must be a big line. It was a fantastic day. And, you know, the Prince of Wales, as he is now, is just so generous and lovely. And we had a nice chat and, you know, it was good. It was really cool. I want to know where someone like you goes for a celebratory lunch. Like, what's your go-to restaurant? Well, because my wife and my daughter wanted to go to a a, a place that had just opened up, we went to a place called Bacchanalia, Mm. which was fun and interesting. Okay. Food was actually good. Yeah, that yeah. feels like a diplomatic answer, but I'm not going to push you on it. We're on to the sixth desert island dish, and that's your go-to dinner party dish. 
I don't really do dinner parties as such because I don't really do start a main course and dessert. It's just not something I really do. However, if mates come over, it's a Thai feast. It will always oh. be a Thai feast. They know I go to their houses. We have groups of friends we go to their houses and we all sort of do our own little specialty thing. Um, Jason and Ange always have their outside barbecue going and they do Indian chicken and they do various bits and pieces. And, you know, our thing is big pots of various bits of Thai feast, some lark maybe, some, uh, you know, a, a, a veggie curry because there's vegetarians, a seafood curry, uh, lots and lots of rice. Somebody might bring the rice because somebody's got a rice cooker. Um, and then we just all dig in. Thai is what I do and I do it really well. And so, yeah, I'm the, I'm the, the Thai cook for the, for the friends. And would you serve a pudding? Uh, not usually. I mean, Lisa might make something or Victoria, Lisa's sister, might bring something. Okay. But she might bring a, a pavlova or something, mm. which is always good. I'm not a dessert person, really. Okay. Um, dessert you... for me is melted camembert. That would be far better for me. Oh, yeah. Do you feel like since you started cooking professionally, was there an expectation with your friends that when they came round to yours, you would be cooking professionally? Do you ever feel that pressure? Uh, no, because I suppose in a way... It, I, I've never been like that anyway. And, you know, my restaurants have always reflected that. I've never been that sort of fancy person. I'm, I'm, you know, I'll go out on the barbecue and cook a couple of veal chops and, you know, make some salad and everybody is very, very happy with that. Yeah. I remember years ago going to somebody's house and it was a, their idea of a dinner party. Lots of people turned up and all these, there was all these whispers, oh, John Terrence, <gasps> what are you going to do for a dinner party? Walked out the back and the guy's making burgers and he's going, cheese and onion? Who wants cheese? Who wants onions? Who wants this? And I thought... That is fantastic. That's really cool because that, again, is like the sausage roll. It's egalitarian. Mm. A burger is a great thing. But cooking a burger and saying to somebody, do you want cheese with yours, do you want onions with yours, whatever it might be, it just breaks all the boundaries. And you can't complain about a burger if it's been cooked in front of you. Yeah. I think it was actually Ruth Rogers when she was on Desert Island Dishes. She said the more important her guests are, the simpler she makes her menu, which is kind of what you're saying. So they must have thought you were very important to give you a burger. Very nice. I like that. <laughs> On Desert Island Dishes, we have a cookbook corner, so I'd love to know, what is your most treasured cookbook? Oh, crikey. Wow. Ah, probably David Thompson's 101 Thai Dishes. David Thompson is an Australian cook who did Thai food, learnt Thai, had a Thai partner, went to Thailand and probably the first person really to do a Thai cookbook where he didn't substitute ingredients and said, here you go, this is what Thai food really should be cooked like. When I went and travelled Thailand trying to find recipes that, that were real and not just oh, add brown sugar rather than palm sugar, you know, whatever, it was, it was bang on and it was incredible food. So that for me, I suppose, opened up many, many doors. We're on to the final seventh desert island dish. What is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island? Yeah, but the thing is, I'd rather be on the desert island because then I can walk into the sea afterwards. Because this is the sort of thing where you die, isn't it? <laughs> no, this is a very well. Desert a... island. What are you left with? You get, what do you get? Some water from the coconuts. It, what do you get? It depends how After resourceful you are. I mean, yeah. you know what I mean. All that sort of stuff. <laughs> okay, uh, so you want your final meal on the island? Yeah. Okay, we can arrange that. A pair yeah. of shorts. Got to be in a pair of shorts, mm -hmm. bare feet. Yeah. Um, uh, maybe a t-shirt, piece of grilled fish, chilies across the top of it, lots of lime leaves, fresh lime across the top of it, a big bowl of rosé, really, really cold, lots of ice. Don't know where the ice is coming from on the desert island, and I'll be really happy with that. Thanks very much. Sun goes down, 
And then when you wake up in the morning, all that's left is a pair of shorts on the oh, beach. John. That's it. Which means I swam naked. <laughs> well, on that thought, we'll leave it there. And John, thank you so much for letting us hear your Desert Island dishes. Thank you. <laughs> so there we have it. Another delicious day of Desert Island dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. It really does make such a difference. It boosts the show in the charts and helps others to find it, which is great and means that I can keep bringing it to you each week. If you don't already, come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes and you can sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of different recipes at DesertIslandDishes.co. Thank you again to Lloyd's, our season sponsor for Desert Island Dishes. And I will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.